You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. A state of high performance. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about something you probably didn't think we we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what creativity, connection, and love have to do with sorrow and longing, and how longing is something called momentum in disguise with an expert who's actually spent a lot of time looking at these weird psychological aspects. Uh, what I believe is that many of the things that we do are based in our operating system, our subconscious, the stuff our body and even parts of our mind do that is entirely invisible to us by design. And then eventually we get this feeling and then we make up a story to support the feeling. And it's really interesting to go in on that in this episode so you can figure out what you're doing actually versus what you think you're doing and the benefits or costs that it has to you that are all entirely invisible unless you know how to look for them. And the idea is that you can learn how to live and work and be authentic in an environment of what I'm going to call enforced positivity, where you get to say the glass is half full, even if there's no water in it at all, I think. <laughs> We're going to learn about that. We're also going to learn about grief and what it is. And if you haven't felt any grief over the last two years, you're quite unusual because that means you still have your job, you still have your business, and you don't know anyone who's passed away. Although people normally pass away at these rates anyway, but just from other causes, so we won't go into that. But there's just been a lot of societal uh, upheaval um, and some unexpected things, and that does usually require grief as a part of it. So we're going to talk about the actual tools that you have on board that you probably don't know you have on board. And... Our guest today jump-started a global conversation about being an introvert about 10 years ago, and she challenged assumptions, things everyone believed, about introverts versus extroverts. And her first book was called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, seven years on the New York Times bestseller list and translated into 40 languages. Her name is Susan Kane. So incredibly successful author. And by the way, guys, seven years on the New York Times list is like, I think it's God mode uh, for authors. Um, I've been on the New York Times list enough weeks that I don't know, but it's through a series of books. And it's like, I just wrote this one book, seven years, you know, like, you know, me and Oprah kind of thing. So she's a big deal for writers. And her new book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be on the show with you. Are you an introvert? Yes. I, I mean, who else would write a book all about the power of introverts? You can go deeper into the topics of bittersweet and quiet with Susan's 30-day online courses where you get to interact with her and her team. You can harness the power of a bittersweet mindset or learn to lead as an introvert wherever it is you work. Go to susankane.net. That's S-U-S-A-N-C-A-I-N.net. Use code ASPRI15 and she'll gift you a 15% discount. SusanKane.net, ASPRI15. Are you an introvert? 
Yes. I, I mean, who else would write a book all about the power of introverts? <laughs> yes, I'm totally an introvert. But, but I mean, people ask me that question all the time. Well, actually, the formulation they ask is like, now that you wrote this book and you go out and speak all the time, do all these interviews and stuff, um, you know, surely you're not an introvert anymore. And like the, the whole premise of that question is all wrong because yeah. introverts do extroverted things constantly. Um, you know, and for and no, nobody is all one thing. Also, it just costs you more to 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 do extroverted things, right? It, it's more tapping of your energy. Is that a good way of putting yeah. it? Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, people kind of confuse energy with skills. So, you know, you can have as an introvert, you can have the skills of public speaking or the skills of doing interviews or whatever it is, the skills of going to a cocktail party. But yeah, as you say, it it, it just it takes more energy, you need more recharge time when you're done. LinkedIn named you the sixth top influencer in the world. Did you have a panic attack when that happened? <laughs> no, not at all, because I don't know, you know, to me, those things are just like media nonsense. Okay. Do you know what I mean? It's oh, like, I know exactly like I'm really mean. happy to be on like, yeah. So like I, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, I'm lucky to have a lot of people who I'm connected with there and I post on there almost every day. So I love those posts. So like if they want to put me on some list, that's awesome. But I don't really think about that so much. Are you one of those people who tries to fill in your weaknesses by being really good at them? Oh, that's an interesting question. Actually, honestly, I really don't think so. I'm much more interested in living a life that I super enjoy. It's just like when it comes to things like public speaking, I had to fill in my weaknesses in order to do the thing that I love most, which is I wanted to be a writer since I was four years old. It's what I want to keep doing for the rest of my life. And in this world that we live in, you can't do that without also doing all the public facing stuff. So I kind of had to figure that out. But I don't think I would have figured out all that public facing stuff if I hadn't needed to, um, you know, in the service of something else. Your, your online presence and your achievements, 16 years as an attorney, you know, top Wall Street firm, all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's, it's very interesting. You're like, I'm an introvert, but look at all the stuff I do that doesn't look introverted. So I'm trying to get to like why you're doing it. And you're saying because it lets you write. And, and that's your answer. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I would just say, you know, lots of introverts are achievement oriented and ambitious and there's yeah. no, I think that it, that's actually one of the great misconceptions of what an introvert would be like the assumption that you would be less, less achievement oriented. Um, I, I think those two things are just not correlated at all. Uh, um, agreed. So yeah, so I am, so I probably am kind of achievey. Um, you know, I was sort of raised that way, but I don't know, you know, for so many years, public speaking was such a gigantic phobia for me and something I hated so deeply and desperately. And then it was like, suddenly I had this moment where my life dream of publishing a book was coming true. And I was invited to give this TED talk and I was totally terrified. And like, I, I kind of had to go after it you know, to the maximum degree in order just to fight the fear at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, 
Um, I, but I, I don't. I wouldn't even have given that TED talk in the first place if my husband hadn't been like coaxing it along the whole way through. Like I wasn't even sending in my application to TED. He had to keep telling me to put it in the mailbox um, over and over again because at the same time that I was trying to do it, you know, of course I also had the resistance that always comes with fear. I, I don't believe that introverts have a hard time uh, you know, being successful or that they're less success oriented. I'm just looking at the type of work you've done that requires you to like go out and, and be less introverted. It was, it's interesting, the career path and all the things that you've done. But if it's in service to what you want to do, I get it. Uh, I'm, I'm actually not that much of a public person. You guys wouldn't believe that now. But before I started this... You couldn't even you couldn't tell anything about me because I'm a computer hacker. I'm like I should be digitally invisible, mm-hmm. and I pulled it off. But let's talk about sorrow because you went from kind of introversion, and then you waited quite a while, um, and then said, "All right, I'm going to write a book." And you went through some personal loss, and um, and you said, "All right, you wrote bittersweet." Talk to me about what sorrow even is. I, I'm not sure that I really know. I, it's like a feeling, but how would you define sorrow? Well, I mean, I really wrote the book because well I I started off trying to solve this kind of lifelong question that I've had which is the reaction that I and many other people have to sad music like in my case Leonard Cohen is like my patron saint I just love him like love him love him love him Um, but I but all minor key sad music for years has evoked in me this incredibly transcendent feeling of love really that's like the only way to describe it and i and i and i had this experience back when i was in law school and sitting in my dorm and some friends came to my dorm room to pick me up for class and, and they arrived and i was like blasting my sad music and and they thought that was hilarious and they were like why are you listening to these funeral tunes and um and at the time, I thought it was funny, and I laughed, and we went to class, and that was that. But, but I really couldn't stop thinking about it, about like, well, first of all, what was it in our culture that made it so funny to be listening in the first place? But also, what was it about that music that evoked in me the, first, the furthest thing from sadness? Like, it really feels to me like the, the doorway to transcendence, you know, like, which you could define as being like a moment where you're... Um, transcending just your own self and you feel connected to something much bigger. And um, and after I listen to that music for a few minutes, I can contemplate the fact that I'm going to die one day and everybody else will die one day. And, and that's fine. It, it feels like it's totally fine somehow because of that music. And that was really the question that got me. That was the question I wanted to answer of like, what was it? And so it started off as a question just about music, but it quickly led me to realizing that there is this tradition, like a literary tradition, an artistic tradition, religions or wisdom traditions have all been talking about this kind of bittersweet mode of being. And this spans centuries that they've been talking about it. It's in every culture. Um, and all of these traditions are pointing towards this bittersweet state of being as being connected to creativity and like a really deep communion. And you wouldn't know any of that if you look in our culture. There's nothing in our culture that is sending us that message. It's, it's telling us to be afraid of, of these kinds of emotions. And I think it's a huge spiritual impoverishment. 
So, so hence the book. Okay. Uh, so you're saying that when people feel like both sides of the emotions, um, that uh, it creates a better sense of peace and all. And that's something Buddhists and others would say as well. You know, you have to feel everything, not just some things. Yeah, and you have to feel them quite well. That it's helpful to feel them quite intensely. You know, and for me, that's. Uh, I get into that state reliably and predictably when I listen to that kind of music, but everyone has their own ways of getting into that state. You know, it, it can look different for different people. Although we do know from the research that music is an incredibly common gateway. You know, like there's a reason that, like musicologists have looked at this, that um, the music that gives people the chills and goosebumps, it's always the sad, slow music. It's not the happy dance music. It, what's the single saddest song on earth that you know of? Oh, wow. I don't know, but um, I love Leonard Cohen's famous Blue Raincoat, you know, which is just like the, maybe the gloomiest of all his gloomy songs. Um, so that's a really good one. But I also think his song Hallelujah, which has been covered so many gazillions of times and, you know, so many people listen to it performed on like American Idol with tears streaming down their faces. And like, what is it about that song that spoke to people so deeply? And I think it's because like, the essence of that song is what he calls the broken hallelujah. You know, it's like the, the longing for transcendence or divinity or what, whatever word one uses for it together with the acknowledgement that the world that we're living in is fundamentally a broken world. Like those two states together, I think are kind of the essence of what it is to be human. And people know it the minute they feel it. They know it's something deep. Wow. I, I love it that you named Hallelujah. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. So when you, uh, when you look at that feeling, I think listeners know like they like that. I wouldn't identify that feeling with sorrow. I'd be like, like it's maybe more longing and, and you're in bittersweet. You talk about how sorrow and longing make us whole. Is that more of like a longing song or is that more of a sorrow song in the way you're defining? So I don't even know the right words for which feelings are where in my body when we go into this stuff. So I'm trying to get a sense for it. That's a, that's a really astute question. Um, Cause in the book, I really do talk about both states of mind. And I think you're right that, um, that, well, I mean, hallelujah is definitely about sorrow, but it, I would say it's more squarely about longing. Um, it's about, I think, just this feeling of like the, there is a, a sense with which all of us enter the world where like you come into this world crying, right? And, you know, psychologists would say, or psychoanalysts would say that we're crying because we're longing for the womb that we've just left, you know, for its comforts. Um, the, the religious interpretation would be that we're longing for um, the divine world that we feel we belong to, from which we've been exiled. I'm not sure it matters which interpretation one uses. The fact is that this is our emotional core. It's our emotional DNA, this sense of longing for a kind of like ultimate communion and ultimate love. Um, and I believe that, that that state, that state of existential or spiritual longing is at the heart of some of the best things that we do, you know, because we're like, 
we're, we're longing for a better state. So in the service of that longing, we're, we're like trying to create things. Um, we're trying to, oh, wow. to, tur- to turn pain into beauty. We're trying to just get closer to the state that, that we long to be in. And that's, and it's, that's also like what inspires us, you know, like you see a moment of like Simone Biles, like, you know, turning some like improbable somersaults or, or some amazing scientific achievement. And it's like for a moment, you're glimpsing that perfect world that all humans want to be part of. And then you're inspired to get ever closer to it. We're not in that world right now, like we, but we want to be, we deeply want to be. I'm getting it now. So I, I think one of the most powerful forces of transformation for humanity is laziness. Like <laughs> we just don't want to waste time and energy doing stuff. In fact, I can prove it down to you know mitochondria in cells that we're energy conserving beings. So like, you know, I'll use baking powder instead of spending four hours to make the bread rise, like because I wanted to save time, right? So that's why a lot of entrepreneurial stuff does that. But I had discounted until you've just said it in the right way for me, um, that longing is also uh, a major force of creativity and problem solving in humans. And because you're saying, oh, it could be better. I long for a better world. Uh, therefore, that power of longing is there. And I've, I, I have different language because I'm a computer hacker, but uh, I experienced something a, a couple years ago at Burning Man, as these stories go, uh, that I would call techgasm. And it was watching you know, several thousand drones go up in the air and put on a drone show at scale I'd never seen before. And I was like, this is such an achievement of engineering, of like human ingenuity for one of those drones to do it. But for them to be like, it was beautiful at multiple levels where you're just like, how many hundreds of thousands of lives of technology innovation culminated in that one thing? And you see this state of beauty of like what humans can achieve. Uh, because of its complexity and its beauty. Uh, and yeah, there's a sense of longing, like why can't we do that with, you know, I don't know, our legal system <laughs> or any of the other parts of the world that are irretrievably broken. And I say that to an attorney, of course, which is funny, but- <laughs> I'm not an attorney anymore though. You can say anything. All right, there we go, to a former attorney. But it, it's like, uh, yeah, there, there is something there. So the, the desire for things to be better than they are um, is different than- laziness. And I think that they're both powerful. So thank you for adding that to my stack of motivation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would also riff on that for your stack of motivation that, um, I mean, you must know this feeling as a computer hacker, the, like, the, the part of the creative process is having like a shining vision of the perfect thing that you want to create. And you know very well when you're working on it that you're never going to get to that full perfect thing you're imagining but the sheer act of trying to is itself an uplifting experience and to me it's actually the opposite of laziness honestly because I I always feel like when I have that that vision in my head like I'll do anything that's why I spent so many years on my books like I'll, I'll just work and work and work at it in the service of trying to get closer even though I know it's an asymptote and I'll never actually reach it. And, 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 and I know it's not just me. I've, I've heard many creative people describe their experience that way. Um, it, it makes sense for me. I'm saying, I, I am seeing like there's a perfect uh, efficiency ratio like right now. Like how do I raise the, the this will sound super nerdy, but the ability of my cells to turn air and food into electricity with zero waste. 
And I know I've shifted that in a, in a very powerful direction, but I know there's always going to be like one more electron I could save, right? And it's not about perfectionism at all. It's about the game of like, how close could you get? Like, is it worth it? And at a certain point, like the, the ROI on something like that isn't there for a normal person. But if you're like an artist and that's your art, you're like, okay, I just wanted to see what was possible because I was curious. And where does curiosity play into longing versus sorrow? Is that like completely a different spectrum? Because these are all words that like, they're so mushy. I, I could define them like with electrodes on your head, but like, where's curiosity fit in your stack of how people work? Where's curiosity fit in your stack of how people work? I know. I have to say the biggest challenge of writing this book is was that it's such an ineffable topic. And yet, like, I feel like it's a deeply important one that we need to talk about. And yet, it's so hard to put it into words. So I'm not surprised that you're asking these kinds of questions. I don't know. I, I do think of curiosity as being sort of a different question. Um, you're, uh, you know, you're probably a super curious person. So you apply this this human way of being, of trying to transform sorrow into beauty or, or to go down the path of longing. You probably do that in the path of curiosity, but I think a less curious person would have their own ways of doing the same thing. I don't, let me just say it more categorically, I don't enjoy sorrow or sadness experiencing it any more than any other human does. Um, and if you asked me, would there be a way to design the world without any sorrow or sadness in it? You know, I, I might say, despite this book that I've just written, yeah, you know, go for it. But what I'm responding to is the world that we have and the humanity that we have, um, which is destined to experience sorrow and sadness over, over various circumstances. And what I'm saying is in that world, <laughs> this world that we have, um, there are things that sorrow does for us that we're not paying enough attention to. And one of the things it does is it kind of creates, these are someone else's words, not mine, but a union between souls. Um, because we all experience, because because we're in it together and we are all these beings who are destined to love and lose and experience bereavement and all the rest of it, we're in it together and we um, and there's a kind of love that comes from that. Like the, the word compassion literally means, like it's etymology, it means, you know, to suffer with someone. And we are designed to, we're designed to respond to the cries of our infants, like that's how we survive as a species. And because of that, we're designed to respond, you know, kind of radiates outward from there. And we're also designed to respond to the distress of other beings. And it bonds us together when we share about it and talk about it. So what we lose when we um, when we live in a culture that says, well, you know, hide all that and walk around with a, a smile plastered on your face, regardless of what you might be experiencing. Um, first of all, we're losing the truth. And I think that humans are truth-seeking beings. Um, we're also losing this ability to connect with each other as much as we otherwise could. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that we love artists the way we do, like musicians or novelists or whatever, is that they're telling the truth of human experience and they're, they usually are um, expressing some kind of pain that they and every other human has been through. And we feel like, oh my gosh, they're doing that for us. And when you, when you read their novel or you 
listen to their song, you're like, oh my God. You're, you're saying that artist has been through this. Everybody who's listening to it has been through this and therefore we're all connected. So it's a kind of glue that we have that bonds us at a deep level. If I fully tapped into the sense of longing, I, I know how perfect or at least close to perfect um, we can make the world. And I look at the stupid shit that people do all of the time that sabotages it for no good reason. Sometimes greed, usually ego, all that stuff. If I actually like went full into that, I feel like I just want to jump off a bridge. Right. Like, like that is a kind of longing that doesn't feel beneficial because you're like, you know, how would you mourn for the overall stupidity of the organism of humanity? So how do you avoid from like longing so much that you just lose, uh, either become bitter or just become unmotivated? Yeah, that's a question people ask a lot. And, um, you know, and I think related to that question is like, well, what's the difference between this and, you know, clinical depression? And they're actually like completely, I mean, they're, they're, they're very different states. Um, but, but of course I see the, the thing people are worried about or that's in your question, you know, I'll give you etymology again, like the word longing literally means to grow longer and it means to reach for. So the answer to your question is you feel to, to feel the, the thing that you're lamenting, but then to try to turn it into the direction of beauty or solving the problem or whatever it is. Um, and this has always been understood like traditionally you know you look at at Homer's Odyssey and that poet and, and that's basically a story of epic adventure but it's understood that the adventure begins with Ulysses the main character weeping on a beach out of homesickness for his native country of Ithaca that he hasn't seen in a really long time so it's like longing and sorrow and homesickness are what propels him on the journey in the first place. Um, and you see the same thing with so many of um, like our, the children's stories that become canonical. You know, it's like Harry Potter enters the story at the exact moment that he becomes an orphan and he's now going to spend the rest of his life yearning for the parents who he's never going to be able to remember. That's what starts us on the journey. So the idea is not to like, be, it's not like to be in tune with what's wrong and then follow it down a black hole. It's rather to be in tune with what's wrong and then follow it to the adventure, follow it to the transformation. So you're, you're basically talking about the magic power of uh, transmogrifying uh, one emotion into another, to quote Calvin and Hobbes, who I think made up that word. Um, but... Uh, you can turn anger into motivation, although it'll burn you if you do that for a long time. And you're saying you can turn longing, which could turn, I'll say, talk into toxic longing, like, good God, how can people do so many bad things? You can turn it into motivational longing, and, and that's that's the hack. That's the trick, is to say, wow, like I, I feel sorrow that things aren't as good as they could be, therefore I'm motivated to make them better, versus therefore I'm motivated to just go, Good God, <laughs> like, why am I here? Which may be more of the clinical depressed path. Yeah, I think it's something like that. I mean, you know, like Leonard Cohen's whole, just to use him as one example, there's a bunch that I talk about in the book, but 
his his artistic career you could really say began when he was nine years old and um, and his father died and he reacts to that by um, taking one of his father's bow ties and writing his very first poem and burying both of them in the family garden you know in like a, a kind of sacred act and his whole career like echoes that act so yeah it's a, a kind of transformation of of a grief into an offering and and what, and what I say to people is like whatever pain you can't get I say it in the book whatever pain you can't get rid of make that your creative offering so you recommend people get rid of their pain to the extent they can and then what they can't get rid of then they get rid of as a creative offering are there other like pain draining technologies <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, pain draining technologies. Um, <laughs> I am a biohacker, all right. You know, <laughs> it's just different language. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, yeah, I'd say call the friend who makes you laugh. Like any any form of connection, I I actually think is really the answer to pain because other than physical pain, you know, that's caused by an illness or, or an injury or something like that, most pain has to do with some kind of failure of connection or loss of connection. And, um, and and like one of the insights that I took from all these different traditions is that, you know, usually like when you're talking about a true lost love, you usually don't get back the lost love in exactly the form that it once existed, but love itself returns in different forms. So I would say to turn in the direction of connection, whether that's calling a friend or or some other kind of act that makes you feel bonded to people. Generally, when you feel pain from something, it's because it's because whatever just happened is something that you actually really value a lot. You know, so like let's say you're feeling the pain of a a breakup, that's telling you that you value a, a connections of love. So, you know, go in that direction. It makes it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, though, and I, I'm just trying to get a sense because it's very hard to write a book like this. And congratulations, by the way, on, on writing Bittersweet because these are all ineffable concepts. Uh, ineffable is one of my favorite words because it means there isn't a word for it. So, uh, like, how do you do this? And that's most of the meditation stuff that I've studied, especially if you go to uh, Tibet uh, or any ancient lineage. It almost reads like nonsense because they're trying to describe a felt state and if you haven't felt the state how would you know the word for it right so there's all this kind of here's what the edges look like but they never tell you what the middle looks like because until you feel it you can't really know now you said something in bittersweet that was pretty surprising you say bittersweetness is the hidden source of our moonshots masterpieces and love stories and the two biggest moonshot guys ever, uh, Peter Diamandis and uh, Naveen Jain, are friends and have been guests on the show multiple times. You know, Naveen wrote a book about moonshots, and Peter Diamandis runs Abundance 360 and started the X Prize and all this stuff. And I don't know if those guys, from knowing both of them, neither one of them is particularly bittersweet. I mean, these guys are positive, like the world is abundant. There, there's so many things we can do, and it's just this full charge optimism and they're the highest achieving moonshot guys I know they teach other people to do moonshots how do you contrast your perspective on it with kind of what people are doing for moonshots I'm not saying you're wrong I'm just kind of I want to get your thinking yeah no I hear you and I haven't spoken to those two in particular um 
What I would say is there is, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about before, that there's always at the heart of a creative drive, um, you know, or the, the desire for a moonshot, there is always an awareness of the gap between the amazing thing that could be versus that which currently is. And okay, that motivates them 100%. That's exactly what, what they do. It's what I do too, right? Like we have to do that because it's like, it, it's kind of painful not to. Um, okay, so the longing, yeah, I would say longing for a better whatever is, is a big part of that. Okay, I like it. Yeah, and like I'll, I'll give you another example of it. Maybe this is slightly different, but um, you know, in the book, I, I spent a lot of time uh, at talking to people who are working on radical life extension and the quest for longevity. Um, and I went to one of these conferences of people and I, I was really struck by how much on the one hand, the language of life extension enthusiasts is one of, you, you could say it's like a radical optimism and it was definitely like a very optimistic vibe in the room and when you chat with them. But so many of the presentations um, by these scientists and other people in this field, they would start with a story of somebody talking about the loss of a beloved parent or child or, or something like that. Or there would be like a picture of somebody weeping over a grave. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, like, that's it. They're like, <laughs> they're like in a state. They're actually, they're actually, this was a collection of people who are actually more sensitive than the average person is to the grief of mortality. And they feel like this this grief is so unacceptable that they have to spend their lives devoted to closing that gap between the world they're dreaming of and this one. So I, I, I think that's often an, an element. You're 100% right. It's the unspoken thing. I've noted, I've noted that for... 25 years of running a nonprofit in the space. There are people who are running away from death and sometimes they have billions of dollars and they're willing to fund, to fund things. Um, and not all of the movement is that though, because there are those of us who are, are into like what's possible. Right. I just want to thank you for saying it. Very few people in that movement where I'm, uh, we'll say a well-known figure will talk about that. Oh my God, I'm afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. I just decided to believe in reincarnation. So it removes fear of death. And if I'm wrong, I won't know. And if I'm right, then I win. Like, like it, it's, right. it's, it's, it's very easy to do it that way. Um, and so then when you don't have fear of death, you're like, well, how long can I, can I live? It's a game instead of a race to not die. Right. Uh, which yeah. allows me to play with longing instead of play with fear because playing with fear isn't really that interesting except in a few contexts. Yeah, and it's also more inhibiting. Fear, fear is not as motivating. Um, it, you know, fear is more like causes you to withdraw whereas longing causes you to move forward. You talk in your book too about unconditional love and why we long for it. Why do you think we long for perfect unconditional love? I mean, I don't know if I have the the answer any more than anybody else does, um, but for sure, that's 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 who we are. Like that, we're destined to do that, you know. And whether that's because our first experience of life is nine months inside a womb, where everything feels like love and all our needs are met, and then suddenly, um, you know, out into the world and things 
are different? Um, or is it because there's some kind of divinity to whom we are to whom we feel we belong and want to return there. You know, like the Sufis call it the the longing for the beloved of the soul. And the idea is that there's no distinction between the divine divine being we long for and ourselves. Like what we're really longing for is, is an ultimate union. Um, I don't think I know the answer any more than anyone else does. I just know that we see different manifestations of that same wish. Um, and that so much of the reason that people have trouble with their real life love relationships is because they don't match the perfect unconditional blissful union for which we long and so you know especially like in romantic relationships you spend the first six months first few months with someone and it feels a little bit like you're in that garden of eden state um in a you know it if it's a great beginning to a relationship, it feels that way. And then suddenly you start to realize you're not perfect. They're not perfect. You know, you see all the ways in which you're individually not perfect and your union together isn't perfect. And then you feel like, Oh gosh, you know, you're like thrust back into that state of, of wishing for, for the garden of Eden like state. Um, And so if you're not careful, you might like move on to the next relationship, even if that original one could have been really great um, just because this DNA of ours kind of thrusts us to keep looking for it. So I think it's really helpful to understand that about ourselves so that we can distinguish between, you know, the quote, a quote, wrong relationship and a quite wonderful relationship, which will still always necessarily be imperfect. Mm, And so that's where that little gap for longing is. And, And then there's a ton of songs and most everyone's experienced, you know, lost love. And in Bittersweet, you talk about the acceptance commitment therapy uh, topic. Can you walk listeners through what is ACT? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. In Bittersweet, you talk about the acceptance commitment therapy uh, topic. Can you walk listeners through what is ACT? The idea of it is that when something goes wrong, when you have a loss or a pain or a sorrow or a bereavement, um, you know, the acceptance piece is to first like really accept all the emotions that are happening, everything that's just happened, you're just kind of like leaning into it. Um, you're you're going to experience feelings of overwhelm, and that's okay too. Like you're giving yourself full permission to accept everything that's happening. Um, but then the second piece of it is the commitment piece, and that idea is to say to yourself, 
like as we were talking before, if if something has caused me this much pain, it's because it's an area of my life that I really care about. And what could I do to commit myself to this thing that I care so much about? Um, so, you know, if it's the loss of a love relationship that's telling and, and it's causing you that much pain, it's telling you that that love really matters to you and you want to organize your life around around love. But there's other kinds of pains too. It's like, you know, why is it that after 9-11, suddenly in the US, so many people sign up to be firefighters? Um, and in the wake of the pandemic, so many people sign up for medical school. There's like a way in which these kinds of painful experiences remind us of what we've lost and make us realize what we really care about. And so you, you can kind of like turn in the direction of that caring. Um, and it doesn't bring, in the examples I just gave you, that doesn't bring back the towers and it doesn't bring back the, the people who are lost to the pandemic. But it's a way of saying, you know, I, I care about having our health be intact so i'm gonna i'm gonna lean into that you don't get your people back but you but you still get to move in that direction okay i i get it and so this is a way of of working through um, loss and love and longing and it's cool that you worked it into your book um, so that people can see that it means you valued something and there's so many people walking around right now with a ton of pain and trauma and loss and sadness who don't really know what to do with it, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's an act of service to teach them what to do. There's something else going on though that's probably driven mostly by social media, but you know everyone's a winner and a loser and everything is polarized. And if you realize that the real world is more like shades of gray. You know, there's some wins and some losses and all of that. How do you recommend people live just in authenticity when everything is, you know, you, you won or you lost or this toxic positivity, you know, look, look at my jet and not mentioning that you just stood next to someone else's for the photo kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's really helpful for people to be aware of how much, and this has been going on since the 19th century, but how much um, U.S. culture, maybe more broadly than that, um, is tends to look at ourselves and at others as, in a dichotomous way, that you're either a winner or you're a loser. Um, and literally in the 19th century, like as we became more of a business culture, people started asking the question more and more of like, if somebody has success or failure, is that because they got lucky or unlucky or is it because of something inside of them that that predetermined this outcome and increasingly the answer that was given the answer became that it's because of something inside you and the more that that happened the more it became really important for people to start acting um like only permitting themselves the emotions that they would associate with winning and not with loss and it became this kind of false duality. So it got to the point in the, in the 19th century, like the psychologist William James starts noticing that people won't even talk about bad weather. <laughs> like it became sort of distasteful to notice that there was bad weather outside and to comment on it because you weren't supposed to dwell on anything that was negative. Um, and, and, and the use of the word loser has just increased. It's gone up and up and up over time. And this started a long time ago, like, you know, in the, in the in 1929 when, with the Great Depression, 
there were newspaper headlines that would say things like loser commits suicide in streets, you know, uh, after becoming bankrupt. So even in a context like that, and it's like, that's why people are presenting themselves this way in social media or, or anywhere. It's like, if the choice is be a winner or a loser, then you know which direction you're going to take instead of just viewing life and humanity as like a, a constant interplay between winning and, and loss and everything in between. That's, that's what life is. So, so the, you know, the main thing I'd say is to, to become aware of that and, and reject the false dichotomy. So, so you just uh, reject it and say, all right, maybe I don't have to smile all the time. And, and you talk about in bittersweet, uh, you talk about how Americans smile way more than anyone. And it's funny, about three days before I recorded this, I was in the Maldives. And that's one of the countries you cite where if, if people smile, it's because they're dishonest or they're foolish or probably both. Uh, tell me more about why smiling means you might be a loser. There's even a quote there from um, a guy in Russia who's saying, life is hard. Like, why are Americans smiling all the time? Life is hard. Um, so there's a feeling of like, if you're smiling in the face of, if you're constantly smiling in the face of knowing that life contains all these difficulties, then you're either not telling the truth or you're too unaware to even realize what the difficulties are. And it's not to say never smile. It's just that it's just a different sensibility. And so they, they don't do it reflexively and falsely uh, the way that Americans do sometimes. Right, right. It's like a feeling of, yeah, it can't possibly be true that you always feel like smiling and that and yet there you are smiling all the time. So what 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 are you not showing? What truth are you not either not seeing or not telling? In, in that same part of your book where you talk about uh, about smiling. Uh, you also talk about a Stanford term called effortless perfection, where it's not enough to be perfect. You have to look like you didn't try to be perfect. And I, I liked seeing that because uh, when I was much younger and pretty much an asshole, um, I, I'm reasonably intelligent and I loved to, to, you know, in high school, I'd finish the test first. And I already knew I aced it. And then you slam your pencil down and make a lot of noise with your backpack. You're like, ah, I did it. It was easy, right? And you're kind of rubbing people's faces in it. No, people, I don't run on that operating system anymore, but I used to be like that. And it it's something that I think is much bigger and more toxic than anyone's really talked about, where people work their asses off and sometimes they're successful and they're usually lucky and worked hard. But then the media will portray them as effortless perfection or effortless success when in reality there's a lot of pain and struggle and work. You just don't see it. And that leads younger people to believe that if they have to work hard in order to get success that something's wrong with them because it wasn't effortless. And you're supposed to just wave your hand and say, I deserve a promotion. And you're like, actually, you didn't learn the skills of the job. You actually deserve to be fired, not to get a promotion. And then there's all sorts of pain and all that stuff. How would you go about reversing our epidemic of effortless perfection if you had a magic wand? I mean, if I had a magic wand, I, I, I'm a big believer in, in influential people um, being able to pave the way. So 
I would say it's really incumbent on anybody who has any degree of influence, whether in their company or school or whatever it is, to be start to start just talking more honestly um, about what what they've actually experienced and what they actually feel. And I want to say I'm saying this at the same time that I'm like an extremely private introvert by nature. So I'm not saying, you know, you are now like obligated to divulge everything about your personal life. Like, I I don't mean it like that. I just mean like, you know, make, make a few adjustments of what you're willing to share. And I, and, and we are starting to do this a little bit more, but you know, even if you look at the last 10 years or so, there's been much more of a narrative of talking about failure. You know, and I'm sure if we Googled it, the word failure is used much more in the business press. Um, but always it's like, People will only talk about failure in the context of the narrative narrative of it leading to an ultimate success. That's the only context in which we're comfortable with failure, um, as opposed to just talking about it as part of life. And sometimes it doesn't lead to success. It just is. Um, and that's okay, too. It's not, I, I mean, it doesn't feel good when it happens, but it is part of this human experience. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in... Uh, in influential people leading the way in doing this. But then also like in in creating spaces for everyone to do it. And we might need, be needing to start anonymously, you know, like social media platforms that would encourage people to talk about what they truly feel. And maybe that would only happen with anonymous platforms. I don't know. There was an app called Whisper that was all the rage about oh, seven, eight years ago. It was really cool because you could go in and you could just say something and it was by definition anonymous and it would share it with people within a hundred miles of wherever you were, but you'd never know who they were. Uh, and there wasn't a permanence in the connection, but people could respond to what you said. And uh, it, it caught on big time in tech circles. So you'd go to San Francisco or Silicon Valley or New York or somewhere and you know, you'd just be like, wow, these people are talking about their real life, like big failures or cheating on marriage or not knowing what to do. And you're going, wow, like, like there's all this hidden stuff that you never see anywhere. And of course, then they didn't get funded and went out of business or stopped growing. I don't know what happened. Someone, someone told the wrong secret. But it was a really neat experiment in what you're talking about. And I was on there for a little while. I was like, this is really, really cool. I even shared a couple things uh, and got like really interesting feedback on it, like stuff that you just wouldn't really bring up in a boardroom or when you're raising funding or whatever. And clearly these are people who were real people who you know knew a lot of stuff. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm intrigued. So there's something going on there. That's really interesting. Why did they not get funded though? If, if it was catching on, I don't know what happened to whisper. Uh, it was, it was like all over the place and then it just kind of crashed. I think maybe they didn't have any way to make money. It was just cool. And the very early internet, you know, circa 1992 was like that. Anyone could be anonymous at any time and it was easy. And so people would share all kinds of neat stuff and there was this rapid learning. And once we started forcing identity, uh, once they shut down, um, the last bastion of privacy was called anon.pennet.fi. It was a, a server in Finland where anyone can send an email and it would anonymously send it to someone else. So you could say something without them knowing who you were. And when some government, probably the U.S., tried to to get them to give up their server, they're like, nope, we just deleted everything. See y'all later. And that after that... It, wow anonymity went away and sometimes for us to express the hard stuff you need anonymity so i'm i'm totally. hopeful that we have that 
Yeah, I'm so struck by you saying that was like a feature of the early internet because I remember that so distinctly. Like I was so excited when when the internet came to be for specifically that reason. I felt it felt to me like you know the feeling of like you might read a novel and um and part of the gratitude to the author is that they're like really really telling the truth, you know, and they're like really expressing something that's difficult to express in regular life, but they just did it in this book. And I remember feeling like the early internet was that. It was like thousands upon thousands of novels of people telling the the actual truth because suddenly there was this anonymous way to do it. And yeah, the the fact that we've lost all that in the last decade plus, it's such a huge loss that somebody should figure out how to fix. Now, you went to some places in your book that I didn't think you'd go. You talk about um, preconception trauma and maybe even generational trauma. And you talk about Rachel Yehuda's work, who's actually been a guest on the show. So do you think that there's generational sorrow or generational longing and that plays a role into how we behave? Yeah, I do think so. And I, I actually hadn't been planning to go in that direction. Um, but what happened, I, I mean, I wrote about this, I, I went to a, a seminar for, well, it's a whole long story. But basically, I went to a, a, a seminar for bereavement counselors, just in my effort to understand more about that. And that seminar ended up opening up this whole question of inherited trauma and inherited sorrow. Um, and I started realizing ways in which like well for me personally um that there's a kind of sorrow that i have always felt on some level that i can remember from a very early age that would happen it always happened at moments of finality you know like i would be leaving summer camp and and i had been feeling ambivalent about summer camp to begin with it wasn't like it had been pure unadulterated joy and yet like just the fact that it was the last day of camp and camp would never be again just provoked in me you know feelings of disproportionate sorrow and anguish and anyway i started talking with uh, this bereavement counselor who was suggesting the role of inherited sor- sorrow and trauma in that for me because i come from a, a family with a lot of that um, and I and then I started researching that whole area, uh, Rachel Yehuda's work and others, and I think it's absolutely fascinating and also just really helpful um, in understanding oneself, like understanding the ways in which you may have inherited a family dynamic, whether it was transmitted to you culturally, familially, um, or through your DNA, a dynamic that shapes you and your reactions in all kinds of ways that you might not be aware of. And the fact of just there's the sheer fact of awareness of it is transformative in and of itself, because you can understand your reactions and move with them. I love the way you write about it in the book. It reminds me of uh, Stephen Porges, uh, who's known as the the father of polyvagal theory about how the vagal nerve works. And you reference the vagal nerve in your book. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has some sounds he can play going back to sad music. And they cause a lot of people to go into their vagal system, which is usually profoundly healing. And so when he plays it in the US, um, usually people... A few people in the room just start sobbing uncontrollably. He has therapists. He helps them. He goes to London and he plays the same 
song to a room full of hundreds of people. And after 30 seconds or something, he has to turn off the sound because the entire room is losing it. And his explanation for that was that, well, look at London. Anyone who's a London native went through extreme bombing and fear during World War II, and they have generational trauma from that, societal trauma. And anyone who's not from London got kicked out of their country, which is pretty much what an immigrant is. So these are people who now have trauma because they left their country. So it's like it's a really traumatized part of the world, either societally or generationally. And he was seeing it in the effect on vagal tone in people and in how they had to heal from their traumas. So I, I think there's abundant evidence that generational trauma is real and the stuff that your grandmother was worried about probably is in there somewhere even if you don't know it and just recognizing that could be possible it matters and when i do 40 years of zen which is my neurofeedback brain upgrade program for entrepreneurs and and types it's excessively common for people to step in you know family trauma or generational trauma and sometimes even like for your people if you're you're dealing with you know an oppressed uh, a population somewhere like sometimes there's just a chip on your shoulder you didn't know you had or a fear and it's something that you know you end up healing when when you know it's real but if you don't recognize it in the context of life then you don't know that you could heal it because you don't know it's there it's these invisible things that are cool and i think you did a great job with bittersweet of pointing out some stuff that's either invisible or very hard to see and saying, you know, it, it leads to behaviors, including to make the world a better place, and sometimes not. So it's it's a fascinating read. And I want to thank you for being on The Human Upgrade today and sharing your work with the world and stepping out of your introvert bubble and, you know, interacting in the, the outer external world and having us all look at you. You did a great job. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun to talk to you um, and really a pleasure to be here. If you liked this episode, you might want to read Bittersweet or maybe do the Audible version. But frankly, as an author, I know she wants you to buy the hardcover because that's what gets her on the New York Times for another seven years. But whatever you do, uh, it would be awesome if you read Bittersweet and you like it. Do the same thing you do when you get a really good cup of coffee. You tip your barista. But the way you do that for an author is you just leave a review. So read Bittersweet, and when you're done going, oh my God, then go on Amazon or wherever you like to read books and just leave the number of stars you think are appropriate so that way she won't be feeling sorrow later because you didn't get your review. See, it all works. You can go deeper into the topics of bittersweet and quiet with Susan's 30-day online courses where you get to interact with her and her team. You can harness the power of a bittersweet mindset or learn to lead as an introvert wherever it is you work. Go to susankane.net, that's S-U-S-A-N-C-A-I-N.net, use code ASPRI15 and she'll gift you a 15% discount. susankane.net, ASPRI15. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider.
This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.